Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, in a very low-yield world, we talk about how to use options to boost the income from your portfolio. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my co-host and friend, Dan Maseka. Dan, great to see you. You as well. You've had a busy weekend on your side hustle, I believe. I have. Yeah, no, t- tis the season. Uh, it's it's actually a little bit much for me right now, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get through it all right. I think you notched a first in your DJ history doing live sound for a... Um what kind of band was it again? It was a it was a bolero group. Bolero, how'd that turn out? It sounds really fun. Uh, they were great. Uh, they they first of all they were super professional. Like when you hear that you're going to be working with musicians, that can mean a lot of stuff. But they were really really good. They sounded phenomenal, um, and they they had been flown in uh, to 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 do that gig. So um, it was it was a really cool event. That's incredible. I know it was delayed because of COVID. I'm sure they're thrilled that they were able to get it in, and glad it turned out well. Yeah, no, absolutely, and it was uh, it was a pretty perfect night in in DC uh, for for kind of a semi outdoor sort of celebration, and and the weather was just really nice for it. So uh, ho- hopefully everybody was happy all around. All right, so let's transition because we've got a couple listener questions. Um, so if you're out there, you've got questions for us on our show. Check your balances at outlook.com is the email address, uh, and we have mugs still to send out so for folks that have been sending in questions for us we are happy to send you a check your balances coffee mug Um, i've gotten nothing but good feedback on them i'm not sure if that's just because people are being friendly to me but i I like the mug a lot so if you would like one shoot us your questions check your balances at outlook.com all right so we're going to open with a uh, question from patrick patrick has, has written to us before certainly appreciate him continuing to be a listener And he says, my wife and I have been fortunate to have maxed out our Roth IRA contributions for the last few years. We are almost reaching the income limit for contribution eligibility. My question is, what should you do with a Roth IRA if you're no longer able to contribute? What is the next best way to contribute to your retirement? Dan, you want to take this one? Sure. So uh, what you should do with your Roth IRA if you're no longer able to contribute is almost nothing. (laughs) Leave it there. Let it cook. Let the money grow. Invest it wisely. This is your chance to get the most bang for your buck for after-tax returns that you can do. So the longer you have, the better. Now we wait. Now we wait. It's what my dad says in the kitchen. You shouldn't feel bad that you can't contribute to it anymore. You're in a great situation. You've built up your Roth assets. You can now work to invest it wisely. Watch the fruits of your labor uh, for years and years to come. Now the good news is, If you have to access it in the near term, you can. So there are chances to get the money if you need to. Um, Roth IRAs have certain provisions that allow you to access principal, for example. You don't have to pay tax because you've already done it. But, you know, if you don't have to, you shouldn't. It's a really valuable tax bucket to have money in. And you should be saving that for as long as you can in most cases. 
Now, we've mentioned this before, uh, but the Roth 401k does not have the same income contribution limits. So if either you or your wife have an employer-sponsored plan or a 401k at work, uh, you should also check to see if there's a Roth option there. Because if you would like to continue doing Roth contributions versus a pre-tax contribution, uh, you might have that option. And, and that you're not going to run into the income limit there. Um, so certainly, you know, the IRAs, whether it's pre-tax, if you can take the deduction, whether it's 401k money, both in Roth or non-Roth uh, 401k contributions are all valuable. But Dan and I have talked about this a bunch that we actually really like a taxable brokerage account, right? We don't need to stop our saving and our investing, even if we cap out in those retirement qualified plans. I think of a taxable brokerage account as a pretty tax efficient way to save, whether it's for retirement or for anything else, because you're getting tax advantages as long as you hold your positions for a year or more, meaning you're going to get into long term capital gains. You're getting a preferential tax treatment there on gains. And uh, that's a great kind of non-purpose way to grow assets, whether you're going to start a business someday, if you want to create a gap year for yourself and take some time off, right? There's just so many ways that you could use an after-tax or just a regular brokerage account. People use different names for it, but just a, a brokerage account where you can do some investing, not in a retirement qualified plan. So many people ignore that. I, I come across so many folks who've saved really aggressively in pre-tax vehicles. If you were smart enough to start a Roth, you know it's great to have money there. But but almost, I'll even say a majority of the time, people are missing taxable investing accounts. Yeah, it's it's something that I I, I run into quite a bit. All right, we're going to do one more listener question. This comes to us from Heather. Uh, Heather is in California, and she writes in. Uh, many thanks for the excellent podcast. How about the topic of saving for college? When's the best time? How much to put aside? What to do when starting late? When the child's eight to 10 years old? He says, I'm basically asking for my grandchild. How can grandparents help out? What about the various plans like 529s? Uh, so first of all, Heather, thank you so much for listening and submitting the question. Dan, what are your thoughts? I love the 529 as a solution. If you're saving explicitly for college, they're not many more powerful vehicles than a 529. You get the tax-deferred growth and tax-free withdrawal if you're using it for a qualified purpose. Um, a lot of plans have great investment options within them. You have high contribution limits. It's a great way for a grandparent to save for a grandchild's college expenses. And I'll also mention, if, if the kid is 8 to 10 years old, maybe it's a little later than you'd like to start. But that still gives you a pretty reasonable window to grow some money and make it a meaningful component of what will ultimately pay for their education costs. I mean, similar to the way that we talk about planting a tree, the best time to do it is uh, basically when the child is born and the next best time is right now. So if you haven't gotten started already, it's a great thing to do. Um, you know, the 529s, I think of that we want to get mostly funded if we can up to the goal amount, right? So if your goal is to pay for all of your child's education or all of your grandchild's education, we want to get pretty close in the 529 plan if we can. We don't necessarily want to go over. So think of it kind of like price is right rules because it's not as easy to get money back out of the 529s if it's not education purpose money. So I don't necessarily want to see people overfund, but kind of hug the line on trying to get as close as possible. And again, the other thing that, that happens, and we talked about this a little bit in episode three, which is all about kids and investing. So if this is a topic you want to hear more on, you can go back, check that out in our in our catalog. 
But different parents seem to approach this with, with a different lens. And it, I find it's a lot influenced by that parent's experience. People that came out of school with really heavy debt loads might want to make sure that their kids don't have to go through that. Other people want their kids to ha- have some skin in the game, right? And and to be involved financially in the process so that it doesn't feel like a free ride, right? There's a lot of kind of schools of thought to that. Maybe it's some balance of, of or mixture of those. But I think that there's many ways to approach it. But we like the 529. Coverdells are very, very limited in terms of how you can get money into them. Um, but you get some flexibility on the investing side. Um, but but I think we're, we're mainly 529 guys when it comes to education funding. I'm going to do a callback to the taxable brokerage real quick. Because if you're a grandparent looking to pay specifically for a grandchild's college costs, perhaps you're already utilizing a 529 or, or maybe you don't want to go that route because it, maybe you feel it's limiting. You can always just keep the money yourself grow it in a side bucket in a taxable account and pay for college directly if that's your goal. When you pay a college directly, you avoid gifting limits, annual gifting limits, which might be very attractive for you if you're bumping up against an estate tax issue or if you're already gifting heavily and want to do more. So that's something to think about. I'm not sure that's my number two, uh, but also something that people aren't necessarily aware of. Love that. All right, so let's slide into our primary topic of the day, Dan, which is options. Not options in terms of just having options, but options as in the financial instrument. And I think that this is something that you and I talk about and and really enjoy as a subject matter, uh, but commonly gets misunderstood. When you hear people talk about options, Dan, what's the first thing that they normally say? The first thing I hear is options are, number one, risky, number two, complicated, dangerous, confusing. People tend to steer away from options for all of those reasons. I agree. And the short version is they can be all of those things, right? You can make options as complicated as you possibly want to with crazy four-leg strategies and all sorts of straddles and all just crazy, crazy options combinations. But we're going to talk today about the two primary ones that we think are useful especially for somebody that is approaching or facing retirement in this environment that we're in that is very, very low yield. You're getting low yield on your savings accounts. You're getting low yield on bonds. You're getting low yield on stock dividends because prices are up, right? So in this kind of yield-starved environment, I think options provide an attractive option not to make that pun. I see what you did there. I know. I I, I don't I don't deserve to have made that pun, but that's all right. You're you're a doggy dad. You can make dad jokes. It's okay. <laughs> but in, in this yield starved world, I do think that options provide an attractive potential for an investor out there. And the two strategies in particular that we're going to be talking about are writing puts or covered calls. So let's start with writing a put, because I think that that's actually the simpler of the two when we think about what the obligation, what the trade is that we're making. To start with, what is a put option? A put is an obligation to buy the stock. So when you are selling somebody a put, you are selling them the right to make you buy the stock, which is interesting, right? And so the way that we can think about this because even using that language, right, probably immediately people glassed over their eyes. Wherever you're listening to this, you're going, oh, my gosh, right? How do I have to think about this obligation? But think of it more like a limit order. So if a stock is trading for 
20 bucks a share. And I write a put at $19 as my strike price. What I'm basically saying is I'm willing to buy that stock for $19, right? That's less than it's trading for today in this hypothetical example. I'm not using a real company for this, right? And so if I'm willing to buy it at 20 today, I should probably be willing to buy it for 19. So the first rule of put writing for us is that you're only going to want to do this on a company that you're willing to purchase. If you didn't want the stock, if you don't want to own it, if you you can do this with ETFs too, by the way. So if you didn't want to own the position, don't write a put on it because the chances are that you could get forced to purchase these shares. So you want to start with a company that you're willing to buy. And then we're going to say, hey, if I'm willing to buy it today, I would certainly be willing to buy it a little bit cheaper, right? Absolutely. And I always found it easier to think about both ends of the contract because essentially an option is a contract between two people. So in Ross's scenario, he is writing a contract that would obligate him to buy this stock at $19. Writing means selling it to somebody, by the way. Those, those are synonymous. Exactly. And that, that's a key point. Let's pretend I'm on the other end of that deal. Ross, when he writes slash sells this contract, to me, I'm paying him for that contract. Because for me, it's insurance. I'm scared that my stock is going to decrease in value, and I'm not necessarily comfortable having it go below $19 or so. So I'm willing to pay Ross insurance on from my perspective so that I can sell it to him for 19 in case the stock drops to, you know, 18, 17, 16. From Ross's perspective, he's making money taking this contract which might obligate him to buy a stock that he otherwise wants anyway. So for me it's a win because I'm getting the security and insurance that I'm looking for. For Ross, it's a win because he's collecting money up front. So even if I never sell him the stock, he's ahead. And worst case, he's buying a stock for cheaper than he would have had he just bought it on the open market today. The key to this is that your downside is the full downside of owning the stock. So when we think about it, we should think about it like that, right? What is our exposure to this position? If we write one contract, which is representative of 100 shares, we're saying I'm willing to buy 100 shares of that stock at that price. We're collecting an income payment up front. And now this obligation sits on our book until the expiration date, right? Until whenever that contract, that option expires. In my mind, I typically try and target a fairly short-term option on this type of strategy. So somewhere in the one, maybe two months out range, because I don't necessarily know what the market's going to do, but your time premium, the amount that I collect for kind of selling that person insurance, we want that to erode as quickly as possible. And so that's why I generally think of this as a shorter term option strategy. And so when you're thinking about this, you're going, okay, if I find a stock that I'm willing to buy, but I would like to wait for a better price or wait and kind of sell that limit order, uh, this is a great way to do it and make a little bit of income in the meantime, which is why this is such an attractive strategy. And it can drive yields of you know a half a percent to a percent a month, which if you extrapolate that out, that means you know 6 to 12% income over the course of a year. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to have a total return of that. That's not me predicting a return. 
But those tend to be the types of ranges when I'm looking to write an option contract. That's the type of yield that I'm normally looking for is in that half a percent to a percent per month. Now, let's talk a little bit about terminology because you're going to hear this a lot as well. You'll hear someone that someone may be long an option or short an option. So in the context of puts, let's talk about what being long or short means. So when you're long the put, in this example, Dan is the one that's long because he is buying a put, right? He's buying insurance on his stock going down. I am selling him that insurance. So I am short the option. So uh, when I do that, I'm collecting income up front in exchange for this obligation. So the, the, when, when I do that, what it's going to look like on my brokerage statement in the meantime, if I assume we do one contract, it will say negative one is my position. And the market value of that position will be a negative number. Because again, I'm collecting the payment up front. And then what I'm hoping for is either that it expires worthless, in which case I keep Dan's money, or that the stock dips below the $19 share price that we're working with. I pick up the shares that I wanted anyway, and then more cash leaves my account because I'm basically making that purchase. Now, this is a key factor here. I would recommend, especially if you're new to options, that you have 100% of the cash available. So if you're going to offer a $19 share price, one contract, right? you have to have the $1,900 in the account to do it. Otherwise, you risk putting yourself on margin. So I, I would not write options on margin at all until you're very, very comfortable. Have the cash available because you should just be thinking about it like how you're going to take this position on regularly, which is if you would just go buy 100 shares of it, it's going to cost you 1900 bucks. Right. Again, and to repeat, one options contract is 100 shares. So sometimes that's confusing when you're getting started and you'll wonder you know, how the numbers are working out the way they do when you pull it up on your brokerage platform. Uh, but one option commands 100 shares of the underlying security. All right. So let's talk about the other trade that we mentioned, because it's a very, very similar concept. But this is if you already own the stock and this is a covered call. Now, the reason it's covered is because you own the stock. If you didn't own the shares, it would be a naked call or an uncovered call, right? So that's not what we want to talk about here. So this is for an example of where you own 100 or more shares, some multiple of 100 typically, of a company, and you're willing to sell it. That's rule number one on a covered call. Don't write covered calls on stocks that you would never be willing to sell. Because what could happen is you're going to sell somebody the right to buy that stock from you at a certain price. So let's say we're going to stick with the same share price, right? Let's say it's currently trading for 20 bucks and we go, all right, I'm willing to sell it if it goes to 21 in the next month. Well, if it goes to 50, right, let's say that stock completely blows it out of the water, has some incredible earnings announcement goes to 50 you're still on the hook to sell it for 21 right you're not you're not going to be able to close that option out without putting a lot more cash in it to basically cover the difference so if you're not willing to let the shares go if that's like a you know core holding for you that you would never want to sell don't do this with that type of position but that being said 
it's a nice way to generate some additional yield. Again, thinking kind of in that half a percent to a percent a month range on positions that you own if you are willing to let them go. So to look at our two parties again, Ross owns 100 shares of this company. It's worth $20 today. He's willing to sell it and in the meantime is looking to create some extra profit from this position. So Ross can write a call option and I can buy it from him. So Ross is going to get money from me. I'm going to pay him. I have the right to buy this stock at $21 is what we call the strike price. That's that's the contracted price where stuff happens. I would buy this option because I think this stock is the next hot thing. I'm really excited about it. I think the stock price is going to skyrocket. And being able to buy the stock at $21 to me is a huge value. Ross on the other end of the coin, again, willing to sell it. He's happy to collect some money on it in the meantime. Maybe he thinks it'll go up a little bit and it'll get called away. He's fine with that. Or it's just going to stay put and he'll just continue his strategy of writing calls and and making some income. So, and, and again, I'm going to go back to the analogy or, or, or to think of this like a limit order that you get paid to set. So I'm, I'm basically as the writer of the call in this example saying, hey, listen, I'm willing to sell this if it gets to $21. That's, that's my willingness to do. So by selling this contract, that's what I'm telling somebody I'll do. I'm giving them that right. In the same way, I'm getting paid. So if, again, if you were willing to set the limit order to buy at 19 for the written put, or if you were willing to set the limit order to sell at 21, if you're trying to write the call, either one of those could be improved by collecting some money in the meantime while we're going to wait. So that's really how we should be thinking about this. Now, like we said, when you're writing a call, you have to be willing to let the shares go because if this if the price goes way up, they're either going to get called away, which is the other person is going to force you to sell them, or you're going to have to put a bunch of money in to retain the position. The other consideration is, have you held this stock for a long time? Is it in long-term capital gains territory, or are you executing something like this in an IRA? These are IRA-friendly strategies. So IRAs don't let you work on, on margin, but if you have the cash available, if you have the covered call position available, these are things that you can do inside an IRA, which kind of takes some of the bite out if you're worried about short-term capital gains, even long-term capital gains, because you can do as much trading as you want inside the IRA without generating that tax consequence. So I actually think this is a fairly IRA-friendly strategy especially for somebody in retirement looking for some income. Additionally, if you're in a taxable brokerage account and doing a lot of income generating options contracts, that's income you're going to be taxed on. Correct. You know, you'll want to be cognizant of that and uh, not set yourself up for any surprises at the end of the year. So yeah, I, as I think about options, you know, for, for an environment like this where the market's been a little bit choppy, there seems to be kind of this sentiment that that the market's a little bit high right now. And we're, we're not in the business of making market calls. That That's not something we think we can do accurately. But if that's your view, I think this is worth exploring. There's lots of good content on YouTube that kind of shows how to do this. And uh, I think we were even a little bit nervous about doing this episode because it's kind of one of those things that you want to be able to draw on a whiteboard for people just to kind of show them what the return patterns look like and all of that type of stuff. Um, but if you think about it just like a limit order that you get paid to set, I think that's the simplest way to to kind of frame your head around what writing a put or writing a covered call is really doing. 
And I, I'd encourage you to test it with a small position. It works really well with low nominal priced stocks because a hundred times that isn't a big number. Or even paper trade it. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, if you go to Yahoo Finance or anything like that, they have options charts that'll show you the pricing on puts and calls. So go explore, get a feel for what it looks like and, and what the trade might generate if you were to actually do it. Again, a very powerful way to generate some extra income when income is hard to come by. Now, the one thing after saying all of that, if you're looking at a stock that you're interested in buying and you're really pumped about its prospects, and let's say you're thinking about doing this, there's a chance that the stock never dips to the price that you write your put at. There's a chance that you never get those shares, right? So you could sell a put contract and never take ownership. So if you're super excited about a company, rather than getting cute with it and trying something like this, you might just want to buy it, right? So so th- there is always a possibility that you don't get that exercise, right? So you know, if you were happy to buy something at 20 and you're willing to wait and you're willing to potentially not get shares, then this is a good thing to think about. But again, we, we want people to take it very, very slow. If you've never traded options before and you're thinking about it, work with small, manageable numbers. The first couple times you do it are just confusing. Um, but we hope that this overview of kind of how we think about options writing is a helpful example for people. If you have a crazy options screw up story, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> Send us an email at checkyourbalances at outlook.com. Tell us about your experiences with options. If you have any great resources that have helped you along the way, certainly let us know. We love to hear it and we'll share it with our listeners as well. Thanks everybody for checking in. We will see you next week. Mm-hmm.